Hello everyone. This is another Acoms episode of Oral Max Facts. So, if you want to receive a CE credit for this one, please make sure to go to acoms.com/oralmaxfacts and just answer a few easy questions and you may get your two CE credits for this episode. Thank you. Easy peasy. Also for any non-healthcare provider listener, a quick disclaimer, this talk is mainly providing information to healthcare provider and we're not giving medical advice. Correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. So today's topic is cornectomy. Woo! Reed and I have done extensive lit review on this topic and we hope that our talk be helpful to your day-to-day practice. You know, cornectomy is one of those topics that is not just relevant to oral maxillofacial surgeon, but a lot of my general dentist friends often ask me questions about proper case selection, indications for referral to a specialist. So I think a lot more people than more than just oral surgeons going to find this talk relevant. Don't you agree, Reedy? Absolutely. I think um, it's helpful to anybody who does extractions and anybody that refers out these wisdom teeth. Okay, let's dive in. All right. So let me just start with a question. Yes? Miriam, which tooth angulation you think is the most difficult for coronectomy? Your answer choices are A. Mesoangular, B. Distoangular, C. Vertical, or D. Horizontal. Honestly, I've never thought about it. I just thought I'm just, I'm as a resident, I'm learning, and so everything feels a little bit difficult. <laughs> and you just got back from general surgery. That appendix didn't need coronectomy, did it? <laughs> exactly. All right, so let's just start with our goals for today's talk, shall we? Yeah. Our main goal with today's talk is to discuss the principle of chronectomy. We're going to talk about indications, review radiographic findings for successful case selection. We're going to talk about the counterindications for doing chronectomy. And then we're going to talk about complications associated with chronectomy. Last but not least, we're going to finish up with some controversial topic, such as bone grafting and root canal treatment. All right, so let's dive into it. Let's just start with some of the key principles for successful coronectomy. So essentially, coronectomy is a deliberate retention of mandibular third molar roots. When they're in intimate contact with the inferior alveolar nerve, we may not want to remove the entire tooth in the case because we want to avoid injury to the inferior alveolar nerve. Cornectomy is considered successful when osteocementum and bone forms over the retained vital roots. One of the key principles for success is to remove all of the dental enamel. Why this is so important? Because enamel is inert and soft tissue cannot attach to its surface, so the socket won't heal. And just a small historical point for all of you historical buffs out there. This procedure was first described in 1984 by Acquire and Dibian as an alternative to traditional extraction of third molars. Just thinking about this procedure being in practice for 30 plus years, and it's just now getting more popular and more accepted in our society. It's uh, very interesting. Anyways, let's go over the technique of coronectomy, the most popular one was described by Dr. Pogrel. So we'll just review that quickly here, okay? Yes. Yeah, so the coronectomy technique protocol 
is administer preoperative antibiotics. And then we're going to, of course, give locals. Then we will raise buccal and lingual flap in order to protect the lingual nerve. After that, we're going to transect the crown at the angle of 45 degrees from buccal to lingual. Following the removal of the crown of the tooth, we will use a fissure burr to remove the remaining root fragments so that the remaining roots are at least 3 millimeter below the crest of the lingual and buccal plates in all places. At at least 3 millimeter below the crest of lingual and buccal plates. Last but not least, we're going to make sure we have a watertight primary closure. Just one quick point here. The original progrills technique that was described in John's article said to raise buccal and lingual flap. A lot of surgeons that have published recently talk about not doing the lingual flap in order to protect the lingual nerve. And personally, I don't really raise the lingual flap. I just do the buccal flap and I tend to get pretty good results with that too. So some of the key points to keep in mind with this technique is, like Miriam said, 45 degree angle from buccal to lingual, 3 millimeters below the crest, and watertight primary closure. These three things should happen. So Mary mentioned 3 millimeters below the crest. I'm sure you're wondering why it is at 3 millimeters. Well, we went back and looked at some literature, and what we found was a study by Johnson & Associates that dates back to 1974. Mm-hmm. 1974, where they performed an experiment on monkeys. In this study, they sectioned the dental roots three millimeter below the alveolar crest, and um, they were covered by a full thickness mucoperiosteal flap. And what they found was that the roots are made vital with the progression towards regeneration of bone. Another commonly cited study is by Plater et al. that dates back to 1976. In this study, 12 dental roots were submerged two millimeters below the crest, and they found a complete coverage of roots in five weeks. Of course, doing similar studies is much more regulated now. And it's, but it's kind of crazy that our foundation for this procedure is based on such limited sample size. <laughs> Semantics, Miriam. Research matters. <laughs> Moving on. Now, given that cornectomy is done to prevent iatrogenic nerve injury, Let's talk about the incidence rate and risk factors of iatrogenic injury to the inferior alveolar and lingual nerve. According to the 2016 white paper on management of third molar teeth by American Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons, and I quote, third molar teeth that are associated with disease or are at high risk of developing disease should be surgically managed. In the absence of disease or significant risk of disease, active clinical and radiographical surveillance is indicated. So as we already know, the surgical removal of mandibular third molar teeth is one of the most commonly performed oral surgical procedures nationally and internationally. But what we may not know is that it is often a source of litigation for patients who sustain damage to the infalibular nerve or lingual nerve and they have to live with the consequences of numbness and other things that follow. So we looked at some literature to see what are the sequelae. So here's some data to back that up. Between 2009 and 2010, 24% of the claims that were submitted to two big American dental insurance companies, such as Fortress and Omsnick, were related to nerve injury. What does that mean for patients? 
the resulting altered sensation or pain from nerve injury could diminish the quality of life and interfere with daily functions such as speaking, eating, kissing, shaving, applying makeup, brushing, and drinking, pretty much all the daily activities that you would be doing. In 2011, Pogrel and all conducted a phone survey of 145 patients who sustained nerve injury greater than three years. According to their assessment, many patients reported significant life changes, the most common one being problems with eating and speaking, followed by depression, adverse effects on employment, and relationship changes. So mostly eating and speaking were affected. Yeah, I agree. That would be the most devastating thing. Another study that was published in the British Journal by Patel et al., no relation at all, okay, <laughs> uh, looked at the quality of life following the nerve injury. So in this study, 30 patients from the specialist nerve clinic at Manchester Dental Hospital were asked to fill out the oral impact on daily performance questionnaire. The results showed that the nerve injury mostly affected patients' ability to eat, enjoy food, and socialize. In this study, 70% of the nerve injuries were due to dental extractions. The quality of life score was not significantly different between patients with infralveolar nerve versus lingual nerve injury. So despite small sample size, the study shines some light on the impaired quality of life that is sustained after a nerve injury. Mayim, what is the relative risk of nerve damage when mandibular third molar teeth are removed? Currently, the literature has defined that nerve injury impacts the quality of life and that there is an association between inferior alveolar nerve deficit and mandibular third molar extraction. But the exact incidence of nerve injury after mandibular third molar extraction remains unclear. Of course, one of the part of the problem is that the definition of temporary and permanent or persistent injury has not been standardized, so it's hard to actually study it. Although the number of incidents varies in literature, it is evident that most common cause of inferior alveolar nerve injury is mandibular third molar surgery, followed by local anesthetic block injection and implant placement. Yeah, let's do it. Study from Denmark retrospectively analyzed 449, not 450, 449 cases of unilateral nerve injury. In this study, the incidence of inferior alveolar nerve involvement 1 to 7 days after the extraction was 1 to 5%, whereas persistence inferior alveolar nerve involvement present for greater than 6 months varied from 0% to 0.9%, not 1%, 0.9%, which is a good news. The permanent inferior alveolar injury caused by local anesthetic injection is less than 0.01%, which sounds very small, but when it happens to our patients, it's 100%. So, and the incidence of inferior alveolar nerve injury associated with dental implants varies from 0% to 40%, which is really a wide range. So, you know. So let's go over three main published studies on this topic, shall we? Yet another classic study published in Journal of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery in 2011, reviewed the incidence of inferior alveolar injury at 0.5% to 8%, whereas the incidence of persistent injury was approximately 1%. 
Another study in 2012 published in British Journal by Gleason et al. compiled data from various studies, and they reported the incidence of temporary infralveal nerve injury up to 8%, whereas the permanent injury was reported up to 3.6%. The numbers are so different than the previous study, but it is not clear from this data whether temporary is less than six months and if permanent is considered greater than six months. Yet another classic study published in Journal of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery in 2011, reviewed the incidence of inferior alveolar injury at 0.5% to 8%, whereas the incidence of persistent injury was approximately 1%. So I guess it is safe to assume that a temporary injury, if we are calling it less than 6 months, tends to hang less than 10%, uh, maybe around 5%, whereas the the permanent injury, as we call it, greater than six months, tends to be around 1%, right? It's easy to remember that number, 1%, 10%, six months. Right. So the question that we ask now is, what are the risk factors that puts one at a higher risk of nerve injury? And how can you as a surgeon help your patients avoid this risk? So then we looked at the literature. A 2011 literature review of 32 articles by Lung and Chung found that increased patient age, impacted tooth, deep impaction, specific radiographic signs, which we will review later, intraoperative infralveolar nerve exposure, and lingual split technique were the risk factors associated with infralveolar nerve deficit. More specifically, eruption status, that is, if the tooth is erupted, partially erupted, or unerupted, were found to be statistically significant risk factors for infralveolar nerve injury. No statistical significant difference was found between the pattern of impaction, meaning was it mesial, distal, vertical, or horizontal, and infralveolar nerve deficiency. Um, just a little bore alert there. So the risk factors for lingual nerve injuries are distal impaction, raising of lingual flap, lingual split technique, and increased patient age, and of course, an impacted tooth. After doing this research, it made me wonder what is a lingual split technique. So I kind of looked it up and figured out I should share with you guys. It's a technique for removing distal and lingually positioned mandibular third molar. The technique requires exposing buccal and lingual aspect of third molar. Unlike the surgical bear technique, raising of a lingual flap is always needed, and that alone increases the risk of lingual nerve injury, as Ridi alluded to it earlier on. So let's go over a board question along the same theme, shall we? If the lingual alveolar plate is fractured and mobile during the removal of an erupted mandibular third molar, the fractured segment should be A. Stabilized to avoid damage to the lingual nerve B. Left in place with minimal manipulation C. Removed with careful subperiosteal dissection or D. Removed and the lingual nerve explored for the evidence of injury to answer this question, I look back to the Peterson. Peterson's basic principle of dentoalveolar surgery requires minimal manipulation of the segment in order to increase the chance of maintaining periosteal attachment and therefore the blood supply. If the soft tissue is inadvertently dissected from the alveolus, the segment of bone will likely to be necrosed. So removal of segment is not advised. In another word, the answer is B left in place with minimal manipulation. 
Yeah, I agree. If you fracture it, do not manipulate it because you probably will increase the risk of nerve injury at that point. And it's kind of counterintuitive because you feel like it's broken, so you have to remove it in order to heal better. <laughs> but I guess not. <laughs> All right. So now that we know how and why coronectomy is done, let's talk about a case selection based on radiographic findings. Yeah, now that I'm a senior resident, I, I actually have to make decisions myself. And I always wonder, is panoramic good enough to show the increased risk or should I do cone beam CT on everyone just because my clinic has it? And that's what we're going to try to answer here. Yeah, you're right. We're, those are some of the questions we'll try to answer here. What we'll do is we'll look at the science of a panoramic x-ray first, and then we'll also review the literature to see what it says about science on CBCT, about the closeness of infralveolar nerve to the third molar. An article that is almost always cited when it comes to infralveolar nerve relation to a third molar is by Rudan Shihab. It was published in 1990 in British Journal of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery. So they conducted a retrospective and a prospective survey of 1,560 impacted mandibular third molars. According to their assessment, when patients had infralveolar nerve deficit, there were seven signs that were present on their preoperative radiograph. Mariam, can you be so kind to tell us what the seven signs were? I would love to. The seven signs are darkening of the root, narrowing of the root, dark and bifid apex of the root, deflection of the root, interruption of white line of canal, diversion of canal, and narrowing of canal. But interestingly, out of these seven signs mentioned by Miriam, the retrospective analysis showed that the first five signs were significantly related to infralveolar nerve injury. And these signs are again, darkening of the root, interruption of white line of canal, deflection of the root, diversion of canal, and narrowing of the root. In their prospective analysis, they found that the most significant sign which related to nerve injury was diversion of the infralveolar canal followed by darkening of the root then interruption of white line. You may want to remember this because it comes up on boards all the time. In 2011, another study by Lung and Chang published a prospective clinical cohort study in Journal of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery, where they studied 178 lower third molars with one or more of the specific radiographic signs indicating of nerve injury risk. They found that the prevalence of inferior alveolar nerve deficit in the study group was 5.1%, which was significantly greater than the one in the group control, which was 0.56%. Additionally, they found that two signs were significantly related to increase the risk of inferior alveolar nerve injury, which was again darkening of the root and deflection of the canal. Okay, so well, if you have to take anything away from these studies, it is that if you see any of these five signs, you should have a radar up and plan for coronectomy. But let's keep in mind that panoramic x-ray can only give us a two-dimensional image. If one of the risk signs present, then we may want to consider obtaining a 3D image with cone beam CT. There was a prospective study in 2007 that was published in O, which looked at 142 patients with four panoramic features, which were interruption of the mandibular canal, 
diversion of the canal, darkening of the route, and narrowing of the route. In this study, they assessed the diagnostic accuracy of cone beam CT and panoramic images in predicting neurovascular bundle exposure. So they predicted if neurovascular bundle is exposed, you are at increased risk of nerve injury. They found that cone beam CT had a high sensitivity of 93% and specificity of 77%, which was significantly superior to a panoramic image where the sensitivity was 70% and specificity was only 63%. So interestingly enough, you know, we, we have all this information and if it doesn't become as part of our daily practice, then it really is meaningless. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that's why Momtaz and colleague from Hammerton University. Where is Hammerton University, Rudy? Uh, somewhere in Europe. That sounds fancy. Okay. That's why Momtaz and colleague from Hammerton University were curious to know if surgeons are using CBCT adequately to justify cornectomy procedure. In order to figure this out, they did a retrospective study of 80 patients who were booked for cornectomy in their unit, and they found that patients who had CBCT were not adequately risk assessed. Only two-thirds of the booked patients satisfied the criteria for cornectomy procedures. So I just want to make a quick point about that. It's a small study, but I think it brings us a very important question, which is, what are the signs a surgeon should be looking for on a CBCT in order for them to determine increased risk of nerve injury associated with mandibular third molar? So in 2011, there was a publication by Eric et al. in Journal of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery, where they conducted a retrospective study at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. They evaluated CVCT for 515 surgically removed mandibular third molar with postoperative infralveolar nerve impairment. According to their univariate analysis, the factors found on CVCT to be high predictors of postoperative infralveolar nerve impairment were. 1. Narrowing of the infralveolar nerve canal. 2. Direct contact between the infralveolar nerve and the root. 3. Fully formed roots. 4. Lingual course of the infralveolar nerve with or without perforation of the cortical plate. And 5. An intraroot position of the infralveolar nerve. Interestingly, amongst these five factors, the multivariate analysis showed that narrowing of the infralveolar nerve canal and direct contact of the infralveolar nerve canal to be the strongest independent predictors. And those are kind of common sense, but it was interesting that some of the indications, such as like the lingual course of infralveolar nerve, you know, or the fully formed roots, are different than the panoramic signs. And something to keep in mind, you know, you have more data points to evaluate a patient with that way. So let's go over another board question. Which of the following is the most reliable? radiographic predictor of possible inferior alveolar nerve injury during third molar surgery. Now listen carefully. Diversion of the inferior alveolar canal, deflection of third molar roots, narrowing of third molar roots, bifurcation of the root apex. So first of all, do not hate the messenger, but this is straightforward from the poor questions. And sounds super tricky, huh? So just remember all the points that we mentioned in our previous discussion about the risk factors found on panoramic x-ray. In this question, 
they're asking for the most reliable radiologic predictor. And the answer is diversion of the infraalveolar canal. Exactly. So one of those questions that you read it, you're like, I know the answer, I know the answer, and then everything sounds similar. Right. And the second one would be deflection of the canal. You know, sometimes they try to word it tricky, but just pay attention to the answer choices. Yeah, they have deflection of third molar roots. So tricky. So tricky. <laughs> Speaking of taking all these factors into consideration and actually making a different decision, another study was done by Matson. It was published in 2013 that after taking CBCT, they changed treatment plan of 12% of cases of mandibular third molar. So that's a significant. It's good to take those factors into consideration when you're making a decision. And what are the signs they found most helpful in making that decision? Direct contact of roots with the canal, narrowing of the canal lumen, and canal positioning with a groove in the root complex. And this is exactly why a three-dimensional study is much better at showing these things than a two-dimensional so if you are someone who is seeing a lot of complications in the way you practice, you may want to consider doing more coronectomy or at least getting a CBCT to see the relationship of the tooth with the infraalveolar nerve canal. Okay, so now that we know the indications for coronectomy, let's talk about the clinical findings that make a coronectomy not a good treatment option. According to Pogrel and all, and other publications, some of the counterindications for coronectomy are active caries into the pulp or preapical abnormality, if the tooth is mobile, horizontally impacted teeth. Now, this is a soft counterindication because there are technically challenging, but some of the investigators still perform them. Another counterindications is teeth associating with tumor or large cysts. If patient is planning to have a future osteotomy, orthognathic cases, and of course, with any surgeries, systematic reasons, such as immunocompromised pa patients, such as chemotherapy, patients who have AIDS, they're undergoing radiation therapy, and so forth. And of course, poorly controlled diabetes. So the coronactomy procedure can otherwise be accomplished with vertically positioned, mesially tilted, or distally angulated teeth just fine. Horizontally, people do it. You can do it. Um, it's probably technically more challenging. Now that we've discussed all these studies and radiographic signs, why don't we just quickly come up with an algorithm that can help you in your practice to figure out which tooth you would want to plan for surgery and which one you wouldn't. We looked at a publication by Barraclough et al. In, in Dental Update Journal in 2017 where they provided a handy algorithm. What we've done is we are going to combine what we found in the literature with their findings and come up with a comprehensive decision-making tree for you guys and also for us in our practice. The questions you want to start with is, is the mandibular third molar indicated for surgery based on Amos White paper? If the answer is yes, then assess the panoramic x-ray for high-risk or low-risk signs. The high-risk criteria are again, darkening of the root, interruption of white line of canal, deflection of the root, diversion of canal, and narrowing of the root. If the risk is low, these signs are not present, then you can consider removing tooth surgically. If any of these signs are present, then you may want to go ahead and obtain a CBCT if available. What are the high-risk signs on CBCT? Narrowing of the infralveolar nerve canal, 
direct contact between the infralveolar nerve and the root. Fully formed roots and infralveolar nerve coursing lingually with or without perforation of the cortical plate and an intra-root position of the infralveolar nerve. Again, if the risk is low, you can consider surgical removal. But if the risk is high, then you may want to perform a coronectomy. Again, keep in mind all the contraindications that Miriam just discussed. If the tooth becomes mobile, then you may want to consider taking the whole tooth out because then you'll leave in a nidus for infection. And of course, if there's any pathology, do go ahead and remove the tooth. That was a very comprehensive algorithm reading. Thank you. Now let's dive in into some of the technical challenges associated with different types of impaction. These were actually discussed by Gleason in 2011 British Journal of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery. When it comes to vertical impaction, the problem is mobilization of root, especially if we have conical-shaped root. This risk can be minimized if the decornating cut is deep enough and only minimal forces is applied to the tooth when fracturing. But patients have to be consented for extraction of the entire tooth if we encounter mobility. Now let's discuss mesioangular mandibular third molars. These are the simplest one to deal with because, of course, the access of visualizing it is easier to finish the root. Next one is distal angular impaction. When it comes to distal angular impaction, the challenge is inadequate decoronation and difficulty in visualizing the surface of the root and gaining access for finishing. So, the tooth should be decoronated slightly below the CG, which reduces the amount of enamel remnant and the need for subsequent finishing of the surface of the root. Last but not least is the horizontal impaction. Inadequate sectioning of crown due to proximity of adjacent molar impedes the delivery of the crown. So we may have to section the crown in a few more pieces. Thank you, Miriam, for breaking it down into different types of impactions because that, that is practically what's important when you go and try to do these surgeries. So let's change the gear a little bit now and let's look at the literature to see if coronectomy actually decreases the risk of nerve injury or other complications that are associated with removal of third molar. There was a prospective analysis of 94 cases by Patel et al. in British Journal of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery, where they provided data on a short-term and long-term complications after coronectomy. So they found that mobility of root was the most common intraoperative complication, and this is pretty much what you'll find if you do a lot of these. Intraoperative bleeding and damage adjacent to teeth were very rare. So there were five articles that reported the incidence of infralveolar nerve injury after coronectomy to be 0% to 1% versus the incidence of infralveolar nerve injury in high-risk patients was reported from 1% to 19%. Thankfully, there is some data out there on the incidence of infralveolar nerve injury after coronectomy. Obviously, the numbers are limited, and we don't have enough data to draw a conclusion yet. But the limited data that we have seems very promising and in favor of coronectomy in high-risk group. When it comes to lingual nerve injury, with traditional extraction, the incidence of temporary and permanent injury to lingual nerve has been reported anywhere from 1% and 0.3%, respectively. To date, the lingual injury has not been reported in any of the coronectomy studies. Okay, what about dry socket? So the incidence of alveolar osteitis after 
full extraction of thermolars, again, ranges from 0.3% to 26%, a pretty big range. But in most coronectomy studies, the reported incidence was 10% to 12%. And when it comes to post-operative infection, the risk of infection in third molar extraction is somewhere around 8%, and coronectomy is about half of that. Additionally, we found that delayed healing or non-healing of sockets can occur because of mobile segment of retained root, retention of enamel, or even dry socket. And what about some of the rare complications like mandible fracture or osteomyelitis? I mean, these are already really, really, really rare with thermolar removals, and there have not been any cases reported with either mandible fracture or osteomyelitis after coronectomy. Not so far. Not so far. Knock and wood. Knock and wood, yeah. Now let's dive into some of the more controversial topics. Some of you guys probably wondering if endodontic treatment is necessary. You know, you might have missed doing some endos during after dental school and, you know, itching to do some more after doing a coronectomy. Let's look at the data. So through historic analysis, many studies on animal models and humans have shown that routine roots are vital after coronectomy. In fact, an animal study was performed by Whitaker and Schenkel dating back to 1974, published in Triple O, showed that vital roots had less inflammatory reaction, they had better submersion success rate, and that pulpal tissues blended with the overlying connective tissue in all of the cases. However, the roots that were filled with gutta percha were associated with foreign body reaction, and apparently they were harder to submerge successfully. Another study that was published in 2010 looked at the patients who had coronectomy with root canal treatment compared to the control group. They found out the patients who had coronectomy with root canal treatment had a much higher infection rate. So although their sample size was small, I think the study just brings about an important point that root canal treatment is entirely not necessary. So to confirm that point, we looked at yet another study that was published in British Journal of course, by Patel et al., my distant relative there, that showed that out of 840 coronectomies, 26 of dual roots developed persistent symptoms and had to be removed. Their radiographic assessment showed that coronectomy had been adequate in 20, but some enamel was left behind in the remaining six root fragments. So they did a histologic analysis of these routine roots that showed that the pulp was vital in all of these routine roots. Additionally, there was no evidence of acute or chronic inflammation in the periradicular soft tissue in all of these cases, including those that were symptomatic. So they concluded that persistent postoperative symptoms may be related to infection of soft tissue caused by partially erupted roots or failure of socket to heal. And like we said, the current standard of literature suggests that endodontic treatment is not necessary or recommended with coronectomy. Another concept to consider is if bone grafting recommended after coronectomy. And we would want to do a bone graft if we had a way of knowing if the periodontal attachment distal to the mandibular second molar were stable or not. A study was published in 2019, which was a prospective cohort study. They followed 33rd molar for three years, and they found that there was no significant changes in periodontal probing depth for all sites from nine months to three years. This is actually a very small study, but I think it's important to look at it 
because they did a pilot study for split-mouth randomized clinical trial published by Lung in 2016 British Journal of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery. So in this study, they looked at six patients where one-third molar of each patient was randomized to be treated by coronectomy with guided bone regeneration, while the other side with coronectomy was left alone. So what did they find? They found that root migration for study group, which is the bone grafting group, was 0.63 millimeters at 6 months and 12 months, which was significantly less than the control group. And there was also a trend towards decreased periodontal depth, but there was no significant difference when compared to the control group. It's very frustrating. It's so close to an answer, yet far away. <laughs> so there was another study that was published in 2016 along the same topic. They, had, they did cornectomy at 92 sites with bone grafting, and they followed it up five to nine years. They found significant reduction in post-operative probing depth at one year. Specifically, all preoperative probing depth of 4 to 7 millimeter improved to post-operative depth of 3 millimeter. All preoperative probing depth of 8 to 9 millimeter improved to post-operative depth of 4 millimeter. Additionally, none of the 92 teeth sites developed infection or root migration that required reoperation. So what do we conclude from all of this? The data on bone grafting with cornectomy is still insufficient, and we need more good studies. All right, guys, get on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Miriam, you mentioned migration of roots, or I think I mentioned it in one of the studies. Migration of roots is actually one of the complications that happens with cornectomy, and it can require reoperation sometimes. You must discuss this possibility with your patients ahead of time so they're not frustrated if they start seeing a tooth come out and don't come back to you and be like, Doc, the tooth is growing back. Let's look at the literature and see what it says about how many of these patients actually come back and require reoperation. Okay, so Pogrell and all found that in 15 out of 50 cases, root migrated by a typical distance of 2 to 3 millimeter away from the nerve at 6 months. There was another study published in 2009, and they reported a similar outcome. In this study, root migrated the most during the first 6 months, an average distance of 3.4 millimeter and the amount of movement decreased to 0.4 millimeter between 6 to 12 months and to 0.2 millimeter between 12 and 24 months. So essentially what we take away from this is that the roots migrate the most in the first six months on average at 3 millimeters based on these two studies. And after that, it is much, much less and not to be worried about. I guess you would suspect your patients to come back within the first six months if it's to happen. Yet another study by Lung and Chung had similar findings in their publication in 2018, International Journal of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery. What they found that most of the root migration occurred again within the first six and 12 months, and they migrated less than 5% after 24 months. Um, they also found that age was a contributing factor because migration decreased as the age increased. So younger patients may actually come back rather than older patients. Interesting. Those are really good practical factors to keep in mind. So let's say that the tooth did migrate. Do we always have to remove it, really? 
That's a very good question, Miriam. The important point here is the decision to remove the roots should always be based on symptoms rather than the presence of root alone. Publication by Patel et al. showed that root migration was reported to occur in 14 to 81 percent of cases, depending on the length of follow-up. Again, when you see big ranges, you should always have your radar up. You know, these numbers are not very reliable. But these migrating roots rarely erupted in the oral cavity, and they could take up to 10 years before you can actually see them in the oral cavity. The incidence of eruption that requires second operation varies in the literature, but it's reported to be around 6%, depending on the duration of follow-up. A systematic review published in 2019 looked at 15 studies that evaluated reoperation after chronectomy and reported a minimum follow-up of six months. They found that the reoperation range was from six months to 10 years, with the mean time of reoperation around 10 months. Out of 2,000 teeth that were included, about 5% of them underwent reoperation. And the main reason for reoperation was root exposure, followed by infection, pain, and residual enamel. Okay, so let's wrap up today's talk with another board question. The best technique for performance of a partial dentectomy is to remove tooth structure A to a level of approximately 3 millimeters above the level of inferior alveolar canal and healing by secondary intention. B, so that the remaining roots are at least 3 millimeters below the crestal bone, followed by healing by secondary intention. C, so that the remaining roots are at least 3 millimeters below the crestal bone, followed by watertight primary closure. Or D, to a level approximately 3 millimeters above the level of inferior canal, followed by watertight primary closure. And the answer is? The answer is C. As we discussed in our lecture, the 3 millimeter below the crystal bone and it's important to make sure that we get a watertight closure. All right, so we covered a lot of stuff here and trust me, I just took my boards. There are a lot of questions occurring to me. So if you want to pass your boards, you listen to this lecture. <laughs> All right, just kidding. Just listen to it for your practical purposes as well. So that's the end of our talk. Let us summarize five key points from today's talk, shall we? Let's do it. The high-risk third molars are first identified based on panoramic signs and then followed up by CBCT. The coronectomy techniques needs to be mindfully adjusted based on tooth angulation. There is a trend so far in the evidence of coronectomy that shows the procedure reduces injury to both lingual and inferior alveolar nerve in high-risk third molar surgeries. Or even though the technique is designed to reduce the incidence of hydrogenic injury to nerves, there is still a small risk and patients need to be adequately informed when they give their consent. So is the possibility of reoperation due to root migration. And as much as you miss endo, endodontic treatment is not recommended. And the jury still is out for bone grafting. Okay, well, we hope that this talk helps you modify your practice to a safer third molar extractions. 
and avoid litigation. Stay educated in your decision-making. Educate your patients regarding coronectomy and the risks and complications associated with the procedure. And also allows you to have a dialogue with the referring dentist. Exactly. Thank you for listening to ACOM's version of our podcast. Remember to go to ACOM's page of Oralmax Facts, and that is acoms.com slash oralmaxfacts. Answer a few questions to receive your CE credit for this episode. Also, if you enjoyed this episode and would like us to bring you more critical topics and discussions, please, please, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. Again, our page is oralmaxfacts, spelled as O-R-A-L-M-A-X-F-A-X. Last but not least, we did extensive research. We have a long list of reference, and if you want those topics, let us know, and we are more than happy to share it with you. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.